All right, so I'm here with former WWE referee and currently the host of Aftermath on Score TV uh, in Canada on t Tuesdays, and also the author of a book that's coming out officially on April 1st. Usually it tends to hit Amazon like a couple weeks early. Uh, it's called the, the Three Count, My Life in Stripes as WWE Referee, and it's Jimmy Corderas, and I'm glad to have you here. Nice talking to you. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So, the so yeah. So when did you when did you did you get approached by ECW Press about the book, or how did that come about? Um, trying to make a, trying to make an extremely painful long story short. <laughs> um, you know, my um, my wife ever since I left the WWE, my wife's been kind of like pressing me. She says you should write a book and and, and you know just chronicle your career in the WWE. And I was thinking to myself. Uh, I don't know. It's it, it it would be a a long process. And then I, I got to know Ardo Cal, who I do the aftermath TV show with up here in Canada, and and he was saying the same thing. And he's saying, you know, you should write a book. And and the the two of them together kind of tag team me into thinking about it. And then um, they introduced me to Michael Holmes, who uh, works for ECW Press, and had a meeting with him and. Uh, he thought it would be a great idea to write a book, so you know what? I, I took on the project and uh, and found that I actually enjoy writing, believe it or not. <laughs> so so it took a little while to get to finally get going, and and it's a learning process, of course, because obviously I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a writer per se, but I do like to write, and uh, it was a lot of fun, to, you know, reminiscing and thinking uh, old stories and that sort of stuff. So. Uh, that's basically how it came about, and uh, yeah, it's coming out in April. I'm really excited about it, and, and I think it's going to be a different perspective, too, because, you know, my time at the WWE, I enjoyed very much. I'm not saying that, you know, the whole time there was biscuits and gravy, but I enjoyed my time there, and I didn't, I, I also wanted it to be a book from a point of view from someone that, you know, didn't have an axe to grind with the company uh, didn't have like really a bad experience there. I, it just, I wanted it to be a positive book, basically. All right. So you, the whole time you were a referee, because I know you started being just a referee on the like Ontario area shows with with the Tunnies, but you were always with WWF. By the time you started with the Tunnies, it was WWF. There was no more yeah. Crockett involvement, right? Right. Yeah. So. So when I first started refereeing, it was about February of 1987. Right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Jack Tunney was uh, in charge of the Canadian office here and for WWF at the time. And so really, basically, my entire refereeing career was, was with the WWF slash WWE. So I guess, was it, how did, so, because obviously, you know, I don't want to, go over stuff that's in the book too that'll be that or that would be covered in the book since i haven't read it yet too much <laughs> in depth well both both for practical reasons for you and also practical reasons for me because it's more in, probably more interesting show that way right. but what so you i guess nowadays i guess the referees that are coming into the company the new ones are generally either indie wrestlers or indie referees who end up in developmental so, right. but back then, I guess it. A lot of guys had different experiences that would get in as referees. I mean, for you, was it just kind of coming up through the ring crew or what? 
it, yeah, that was it exactly. It was, you know, I got introduced to Jack Tunney, who, who brought me on board, you know, to work for for him specifically, um, you know, for the WWF at the time, but mainly in Canada. And and he, you know, I got put on the ring crew, and I did that for about a little over a year before uh, Pat Patterson actually approached Jack and and said, uh, you know, why don't we try him out as a referee, basically, and. Uh, you know, eventually I got an opportunity to try that, and and that's how it started. So it, it's a little different now. Like you said, uh, basically the guys you see in developmental at NXT in Florida are all, you know, former indie referees or, or some even wrestlers. And, and it's changed uh, over the years. Before it was like, well, this guy's here. He's already working on the ring crew and stuff. Let's 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 try him out as a referee, see if he, he fits. And 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 it was almost like word of, now it's now it's very corporate. You got to send in video, send in a, a resume, and that sort of stuff. So it's become, uh, I guess, modernized for lack of a better term. So was that the route that most of the referees would take? That they would end up on the ring crew first, or was it did it vary a lot? Um, it didn't vary too much. I mean, when I think back of all the referees who were there. Um, when I first started, you look at guys like Joey Morella, for example, the late Joey Morella. He was on the ring crew. Uh, Mike Chioda on the ring crew. Jack Doan on the ring crew. Um, even the Hebners. But when they first when they came to the WWE, they were they weren't on the ring crew. They were just referees. But right, because they, they had already they already had experience as referees because they worked for Crockett. Yes, but uh, when they worked for Crockett, they also did uh, ring crew work. Right. Oh, okay. So, so it was kind of like, um, it was almost, at the time, multitasking when you were a referee. You, you did other duties as well. Right. That, like I, Right. From what I've read, the referees kind of help run the ring crew, supervise the ring crew. And is that kind of a, did that grow out of the referees coming from the ring crew? Or is it just kind of a chicken and the egg type thing where they've just been kind of closely linked and no one's sure where it started? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I, I'm not sure specifically where it started, but from from my time there, from my beginnings there, it's pretty much the way it's been. So uh, I'm assuming that it goes way back. Uh, I could be wrong, but uh, it almost seems like for some reason the referees and the ring crew, not all, but for the most part, kind of go hand in hand. So at... What kind of training do you get as far as taking bumps? Like, do you get that as soon as they're ready to make you referee in case you need to take a bump? Or does that come later when the first time you're in a match where you need to take a bump or what? Or at least in your case. Um, in my personal case, I didn't really train to take bumps, so to speak. Um, two, two reasons for that. One was I didn't at the beginning have aspirations of becoming a wrestler. So I never, you know, the actual training of taking bumps didn't occur to me. The other one is, in my opinion, a referee should not bump like a wrestler. The referee should bump like, uh, I'm trying to explain it as best I can. No, I get what you're saying. It, it a referee awkward. It should not look like, like if a referee gets clotheslined and he takes a flat back bump. Right. It looks, it'll look bump. wrong. Yeah. If, if he takes a clothesline and he find, falls kind of awkwardly, and it it should look unnatural. Right. They right. The referees tend to fall sideways or on their face or whatever. It's all exactly. It's, it should it should look it should look more like a train wreck. <laughs> so 
So that that's that's another reason, you know, that I thought maybe I shouldn't. But but when you're in there and you're like I said, setting up the ring and that sort of stuff, you can't help but kind of, you know, I don't want to say play around in there, but you you experiment a little bit. And of course, sometimes the guys show up a little bit early to work out in the ring, and so and they kind of uh, help you out and teach you a few things as well. Uh, basically, how to do things somewhat safely so that you don't hurt yourself because. As much as you want it not to look like an actual wrestling bump, at the same time you don't want to hurt yourself. Right. So, so it, it's that fine line. So, I, so you know the question whether I was formally trained to take bumps, not really, but uh, uh, I think it works to my advantage in that regard. <laughs> so, I, I, w- I was kind of curious when I was thinking about the ring crew thing. Is there any kind of like a practical aspect to it in the sense that well? The referees are in there working in the ring, so it's good to have them supervise the ring crew because they'll know better than guys who are not talent what maybe certain things to look for. Yeah, it does help, like especially if you're in a match, and and not that things go wrong, but potentially something can happen to the ring. Whether, like for example, in the WWE, their ropes are actual rope; it's not the cables, so. Uh, there is a possibility of rope wearing and that sort of thing. So there's little things you can look for that may need repair that somebody else that, that doesn't set up the ring may not notice. And and if something does go wrong and needs to be fixed quickly, uh, you know, having the referee there and on the spot obviously helps, you know, as far as timing goes, you know, you can get things done a little quicker. Right. Yeah. It, well, especially like, you notice it more and more like if you're at a pay-per-view and I don't remember it being quite like this years ago but if you're at a pay-per-view or a Raw it seems like now it's like between every match that you see the referees you know adjusting the turnbuckles and everything yeah it's 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 more or less keeping an eye on things and just making sure that everything's kosher so to speak so did you I'm trying now, because I'm trying to remember, by the time you started, were they still using the older ring in Toronto, or did they switch to a standard WWF ring by then? Because I know for a few years they used the ring that they used for Crockett. Yes. Um, for the first little, uh, uh, I want to say, I, I can't give any specific time frame, but for the first little bit that I was there, it was the old ring that they used for Crockett, and then they they brought in the standard WWE ring. So it was it was there for a short time, but then they, they switched and they, they decided to bring a WWE ring to make all the rings uniformed everywhere they went. So was there a time where Vince or whoever became more of a stickler about using the WWF standard rings? Because I know he hears stories, you know, that he that he's very insistent on it because that's what you know, is his father used and all that, but, like, was there a time where it became that every ring was a WWF ring, and, or, and is it, or is it really more of a practical thing where they want to have, for safety and knowing how the ring works, that they want to have the same type of ring everywhere? That's exactly it, and that's, that's, that's basically what the office was thinking, that if all the rings are, are exactly the same in uniform, then you don't have to adjust I mean, I remember like guys who would come over, for example, from WCW to the WWF or the WWE. WCW rings were 18 foot, and the WWE rings are 20 foot rings. 
And not only that, the ropes are a little bit higher. The top rope is a little bit higher in a WWE ring as opposed to the old WCW rings. So there was that adjustment period and and it's it's that extra step, for example, when you're running the ropes and that sort of thing. And there's a different feel between the old WCW rings, which had steel cable wrapped in uh, in rubber, as opposed to the the natural ropes. So, you know, Vince's mindset and the office's mindset was that if all the rings are the same, then there's, you don't have to make that adjustment from one town to the next or that sort of thing. Yeah, because it used to be that arenas, I guess certain arenas, if they were, if they had a lot, if they had wrestling regularly, would have their own ring. Yes. But, and I, I, I'm guessing that's pretty much completely over with. And it has been, I would guess, at least the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. Now now the rings are brought in. It doesn't matter which arena it is. All right. Now, I, th- I think I heard somewhere, though, that some, some arenas still have, for some reason, have their own cages, though. Like the, um, like, or like when, cause you would still see once they had switched back to the chain link fence that you would, there would still occasionally be some house shows where you'd see the old style cage. Was it that, or was it just the, a matter of just whatever they had available on hand? Um, you know what? I couldn't tell you for sure. Some of the buildings still have the, the, the old style. I, I, I think you're, you're referring to the old blue cage with the, right, the, the blue and the black big steel bar cages yeah i i know they still have them in storage they have a big warehouse up there in connecticut and i know they've still got them there now whether some of the buildings still do uh that's a good question i I couldn't answer you one way or the other but i'm sure there might be a couple still out there somewhere in some arenas that who knows maybe somebody's using for rebar or something i don't know (laughs) See, this is the type of little thing that I like asking about. Cause, and, this, and this isn't the type of thing that's going to be in your book. This is too geeky to be in your book. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I can be pretty geeky. At times, it, I'll leave that up to the readers to decide what, how geeky it is. So uh, how long was it that after you started the, you started being a regular on-tour roster referee with WWF? Uh, uh, let's see. Um, like I said, I started refereeing around February of 87. And I made my first uh, television referee debut, I guess you'd call it. I guess it was the beginning of July of the same year, of 2007. And that's that's back when they used to do superstars, uh, superstars of wrestling. And then it would be they'd tape three weeks worth of television. Then the next night they would tape three weeks worth of wrestling challenge. Right. And uh, I remember, well, it was in Glens Falls, New York, was the first one I got to uh, to do. And it was uh, it, during the third hour, I ended up taking my first referee bump as well. And it was on television. And it was uh, at the hands of the one-man gang who who decided uh, to give me the his finisher, the 747, which was mm-hmm. a bit of a, a shocker for me. But uh, it was also a good experience, you know, and I think it was a bit of a test, too. To see if, you know how I would react to, to something I had never done before and that sort of stuff. But uh, uh, knock on wood, everything turned out all right after that night. So yeah, I mean, I would I would think or hope that he he was a pretty safe guy with that splash because he had been around for a while. Oh, absolutely, and uh, you know I, I even you know as green uh, uh, as green as I was, and I, I did I did say to him I said uh, you know I don't want this to look you know 
to look horrible. I've never done this before, so so please tell me what you want to do. He says, just you know, turn your face to the side. I'll take care of the rest, and he did. He was awesome. So back then, were the referees wearing earpieces yet, or did that come later? No, that came uh, uh, quite a few years later. Back then, you know, time cues came from the uh, timekeeper at right side. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, hand signals, which, you know, funny story. Again, first TV for me, uh, I uh, one of the earlier hours, I refereed a match with George the Animal Steel. And, of course, being as green as I was, still not thinking, uh, you know, ignored the timekeeper and the match went a little longer than than was supposed to take place but uh you know again you learn from your mistakes so when was when exactly was it that they started using the earpieces you know i've been trying to think of the exact year and i can't think of it but i gotta about (laughs) mid mid 90s okay somewhere around the mid 90s somewhere so was it a was it a weird adjustment? Because I, I know I read, like, when after... Remember, remember when they had those tryouts for a bunch of referees after, around when they started the new ECW? That mm-hmm. I remember that James Beard wrote online that he that it was like... The, that was the biggest adjustment he had when he was doing the tryout, was the earpiece. Right. Um, well, it, obviously it takes getting used to, because for one thing... <clears throat> excuse me. If it, <clears throat> pardon me, you've got to clear the throat a little. Um... Well, we we were fortunate enough where when we first when they first decided to do it, it was like an earbud. It's one of those little plastic rubber nubs that you have to kind of like jam in your ear, which is very annoying. So then they decided afterwards to get us fitted earpieces, which is very much more comfortable. The only problem though is when you when you got that thing in, you you, you basically have hearing only in your other ear mm. to listen to the talent, to listen to the boys, to listen to right because it's basically an earplug. Yeah, and and the only thing you can really hear out of that ear is is uh, whoever's talking to you from the back, giving you your times and, and whatnot. So there was that adjustment period, and also you know, if you're not used to it, it it can be very distracting. So would it, was it the same person who would be directing the announcers, or someone different? No, it'd be somebody different. Like for example, uh, when we first started wearing them. It would be either uh, it would be uh, Bruce Pritchard or uh, or Gerald Briscoe or sometimes Sergeant Slaughter, uh, somebody like that who who would be there just in contact with the director because the director's trying to direct the show and get the camera angles and stuff like that. So you know he, they needed someone else to be able to communicate with the referees. Mm-hmm. So basically that was their job is to keep the referees you know in their time structure. So the, the main reason for the earpiece is, the, is for timing purposes because, you know, especially with television and pay-per-view, you have to hit your time. So you don't want to end up like the WCW did that year where they went off the air and their pay-per-view was yeah. <laughs> over yet. So, so they're very, very time conscious. Were there ever, ever any catastrophes with them not working or did they tend no. to work pretty well most of the time? No, they are pretty good. I mean, it's it's a mechanical thing, so obviously from time to time you will have an issue. It's it's unavoidable. It's it's just the nature of of when you're working with uh with uh, electronics. Um I remember WrestleMania 19 in Seattle, there were a little bit of issues with uh 
with getting the signal, picking up the signal, and I don't know why, for some reason in that facility, it was tough to pick up, but there were times where it was cutting in and out, but for the most part, they work really, really well. So, I, one thing, I can't, I feel like, I, I feel like I know the answer, but I'm not sure. Were the, well, the referee, I know the referees are considered talent for certain things like drug testing and other stuff. Are they employees or are they independent contractors? No, they're the same status as as the as the wrestlers themselves. They're okay, they're considered so independent contractors. They're all yeah. just straight. They're all all referees and wrestlers. They're all just they're all in that same talent bucket. Yeah, pretty much. But it, it's weirder for referees because they're they're in that kind of gray area where they're um, they're considered talent as far as contractually, but they're uh, they're 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 kind of like that middle ground between talent and and office because you gotta. You know, you. It, it's hard to explain. It's just it's just like gray area because you're not really, really, really one of the boys, but at the same time you are. You know what I mean? The, the boys accept you as one of their own, but it, it's still kind of different. It, it's 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 something that's kind of un, hard to explain, and and, and I don't want to, <laughs> you know, misrepresent it at all. Okay. But it, it's just it's just a, a different. Uh, kind of area altogether. So, did you ever get an impression that, like, WWF had a, considered sort of a different role for the referees than other companies would? Like, I guess, especially once when, like, Nick Patrick and I'm trying to remember, was it just Billy Silverman who got fired who came in with WCW, or was Nick was Nick Patrick the only one? Oh, Charles Robinson. Right. Charles too. Yes, it was Charles. Nick Patrick and Charles Robinson were the were the ones ones who stayed long term. Yes. Yes. So, uh, it, I yeah. mean, because I think back to like, like when Nick Patrick was in WCW. I've been mean, going back longer. Like I think of him, you know, because like, he'd be in like if he was working with the Midnight Express. It seemed like they always would try to work in like some kind of comedy spot with him or something if it was on a big show. Right. Like the thing where Cornette would start boxing him or yeah or when he or when they get all the wrestlers would get into a crisscross or whatever and he'd do a leapfrog and stuff like that right like was there room for wrestlers to like suggest spots like that if a referee could do it or did they have kind of like a more defined role the referee has to be like this because i don't think of that type of stuff happening that much in wwf no it um I think I think what what you, what, you, what we found, especially in the WWF or WWE, is um, they want they especially nowadays they want the referees to look very authoritative and not right. not viewed in that kind of comedic sense, which doesn't mean at some at times they don't do it. I mean, obviously that's back in the day, especially years ago, it was more reserved for let's say what we used to call house shows now called live events. Or you'd have a little bit of fun with right. the referees, and you'd experiment a little bit more. Uh, not so much on TV or pay-per-view, but you know, like like at house shows, you you have a, a few more liberties to have, uh, so you know, some yucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's I I love going to WWE house shows nowadays. That they're oh. they're it's I mean I guess yeah that it's still sort of like it used to be in the sense that. If you go from town to town, a lot of the guys, I guess, still will be working mostly the same match, but yeah. they st- they tend to th- to throw a lot of little things in. 
right, whether right. it's you know a certain comedy spot or whatever like just just little different things or depending on the town like yeah i'm in new york so like stuff like i i get the feeling because of the way they consider madison square garden so special you wouldn't see as much of the goofing off there as you would at a town they hit less but it's right. still it, it's still just very enjoy a very enjoyable experience and I mean, I love the pay-per-views just because the, especially on certain shows, like, that you're, and you know, and I guess in New York sometimes it means something, especially at the Garden, that you're going to get a great show. But I, I think house shows are definitely much more entertaining than TV tapings nowadays. I think so, because you don't have those restrictions. You don't have those time restrictions that you do on TV. Plus, you, you, you mentioned Madison Square Garden, and... And, you know, the, the the fans, the crowd at Madison Square Garden, you know, are generally regarded as very intelligent wrestling fans. So what works at Madison Square Garden that people will, will like may not work in some place like, uh, I don't know, a, a smaller town somewhere else. So that's the other thing uh, the guys like to do is you get and you got to feel out the crowd, too, a little bit and see what they're responding to. You know what I mean? So. Mm -hmm. If you if you do step by step the same match you did the night before, you, you may get zero reaction. If you see that stuff isn't working, we'll change it up a little bit. Now, guys, I think are encouraged to do that and are are learning. I mean, that's the way the veterans used to do it back, you know, in the old territory days. Is you, you know, you you had a beginning, you had a finish, and then the rest was all let's feel the crowd out. So I be, I mean that makes me think about though because it it seemed like. You know, back, you know, back, I guess, maybe, like, late 80s, early 90s, and maybe more so because that you had a decent amount of the house shows televised, obviously far from most of them, but enough of those major market house shows were on, like, the local cable sports networks, yep. that they gained more of a reputation for the wrestlers working the same match in every town. Uh, right. Was it just a matter of, because of the way the schedule was, that it was easier for them to have a routine, or... Was that the impression you got, or was it something different? I think it, it was because, uh, I mean, a lot of the matches were, were similar, I won't lie, but it just seemed like the reason that they, they kept going to it was because it kept working. Yeah. <laughs> it, like I said, if they weren't getting a reaction to it, then I'm, I'm sure they would have you know, altered certain things. But for the most part, stuff was working, so right. you know, you can't get away with it as much now because of the multi-channel universe i mean if you they used to I, I i believe msg used to broadcast stuff from madison square garden right and uh i don't i think somebody used to broadcast from from the boston garden the old boston garden and up here in toronto you know maple leaf maple leaf gardens was always um the matches there were recorded and shown on on saturday evening so um yeah. right if you had a satellite dish then yeah <laughs> exactly so but Back then, it wasn't as 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 prevalent as satellite, right. so you didn't really worry about it too much. Right. So uh, you were talking about the how now they want to be the, the referees to be more authoritative, and you you were around for when they made that transition, especially the change to the referees needing to referee the matches as a shoot, in the sense that for someone who's not aware of what exactly that would mean, that. You don't stop. You don't stop the count at all if someone forgets to kick out. That you need right. to. That if you know, because otherwise it looks ridiculous. So, 
I it's it seems like in general it's a positive thing. But were you around when they had the whole weird thing where? Because I think that's still the way they do it. But there was a referee who got fired for following the policy. Um, you know, I don't think I was there for that. But I, I was there when the when the change occurred where they wanted just listen. Here's what we're going to do. This is the direction we're going to take as far as refereeing goes. You guys are the authority figure in the ring. Basically, referee, like you said, as a shoot, treat it like a, an actual competition. Do what you would normally do in the course of a match, you know, as far as enforcing the rules with your counts, so on and so forth. And not only like pinfalls, but also like, for example, in the corner, if someone doesn't break by the count of five, you know, you disqualify them. And, and, right, or if someone's and, timing was off and they interfered right. in front of you or the partner came in in front of you, right, you had to... Right. Right, and and it and it kind of makes sense because the more liberties you take uh, with the rules, then what's the point of having a referee in the ring? Now I understand that, again, this is professional wrestling and it is entertainment, but but at the same time, from a logic standpoint, if you don't have those rules in place and if they're not followed, why have them at all? I mean, there's there's a point where you can go too far with it, but at the same time. You, you know, you know what I'm getting at here. It, it, right. It, you can do it in a way where it's, it's not ridiculously strict, but at the same time, makes sense. Right. So, did you find that it, did it allow you to kind of relax a little more in the sense that you didn't have to ever worry about holding up your count again or anything like that? Um, I, I never really worried about it to begin with because, I, um, I think I can count on one hand. The amount of times that I've actually uh, counted out or disqualified somebody for not uh, not hearing, because one of the things I try to do as best I can is to be in a position where when I count, whether it's a pinfall or whether I count in the corner, I'm loud enough and close enough to the person where they could hear me, and 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 could pot and especially with with a pinfall where they could see my hand. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and time it that way. So, not that it hasn't happened to me where I've actually had to count someone out for not kicking out, but uh, you know, I've I've never, I don't want to say I've never done it. I've probably done it a few times where I've kind of altered that final count, but uh, I prefer not to. I prefer that you know that you know we're all working together in there and hopefully don't have to do something like that. Now, this may sound like a weird question, but one thing that I've noticed, I've seen some other fans notice was over the years is that, I don't know if it would necessarily be specific referees or whatever, but sometimes it would be more noticeable that when the referee went to the mat, it would sort of look like he was counting. Was that a thing that some referees would do in case someone kicked out at the wrong time, that they could say, oh, no, that was one? Um, oh, I know, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's... No, I don't think that's the case. I, I think it's just when you go down to, you know, to position yourself to make a count. Sometimes I've seen it before where someone will, will dive down to the mat and it it would look like a, a one count. It would look like the first count in the pinfall, but in actuality, what they're doing is more or less getting into position to count, but their arm hits or whatever the, the case may be. So it looks like a one count. So when they do count one, two, to the to the uh, to the people watching, it looks like three, but they're actually at two. I know what you. 
So it's not an intent. It's not like an intentional thing in case someone kicks out at the wrong time. No, no. Okay. It's it's just like uh, I, I don't want to say it's it just an unfortunate way of of uh, positioning themselves to make the first count. Where in the act of positioning themselves, it yeah. looks like the first count. Okay. Yeah. I I don't I don't believe that's intentional at all. So we were talking a little bit earlier about bumping and stuff. Were were there referees? I guess if they had a background as a wrestler like a Nick Patrick that were more comfortable with bumping or that if there was going to be a ref bump that they might prefer to put a certain, certain wrestler in, I mean, referee in? Uh, sometimes. Yes. Um, I mean, you take nowadays, Scott Armstrong, you know, you know, very accomplished, uh, in-ring, uh, talent who's now a referee with the WWE. Um, Scott's, Scott's unique in, in that, Coming from a wrestling background, you you know his automatic reaction would be to, to like we talked about earlier, bump like one of the boys. Mm-hmm. But he's he's been able to adapt, and and he I, I remember specifically the kick he took from Sheamus, the uh, brogue kick, mm-hmm. at the one pay per view. I mean, he took it fantastic. It it just looked like, it looked like a referee bump. It didn't look like somebody, um, it didn't look like one of the boys bumping. So. Uh, sometimes they do. Sometimes they prefer to have certain people in there for, for certain situations. It's I don't think it's more because uh, they're former wrestlers and they're they're more comfortable taking the bump. I think it's it's more of an experience thing and guys that they feel more comfortable to be in that position, experience wise, refereeing as opposed to uh, you know being an ex wrestler, so to speak. Yeah, I guess yeah. When you say that, it sort of clicks in my head because. I guess Earl Hebner, he didn't necessarily, even by that kind of re- different style bump for a referee standard, didn't necessarily take the best bumps. But I guess because he was the head referee and the most experienced, that he would be in those situations a lot. Because you always think, because you always think about him doing those slow counts at the end of a match after, you know, especially if he's been bumped. Right, and, right. and it's all about positioning too, because. Uh, a lot of a lot of times you you want to, especially if you're having a referee bump, you don't want it to look like you don't want people to say, oh, here it comes, the referee's about to get bumped. You right. want it to look <laughs> as natural as possible and and kind of almost look like it comes out of the blue. So p- positioning for that bump is very important as well. Now, aside from the angle they did together, did, was Dave Hebner ever actually a referee or was he just an age a road agent? No, he was actually a referee before Earl came to the... Oh, no, 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 right, right, right. Dave was there first, then Earl came in. That's what I meant. I I meant after Earl became a referee, Mm -hmm. was Dave still a referee? Yeah, at the time they were still refereeing, they would, uh, uh, as far as house shows would go, one would work because they had the the, uh, two... uh, They would run two shows per evening on the weekends, right? Mm -hmm. So Dave would be at one show refereeing as Dave Hebner, and Earl would be at the other at the other show refereeing as, as Dave, Dave Hebner. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Dave Hebner showed up at every WWE show, no matter what town we were in, <laughs> which was kind of funny and, and, and cool. Uh, so, yeah. So when, when was it that Dave stopped being a referee and or it was just Earl? Cause I feel, I think I remember reading that there was a long time where, or it was just Earl, but he was called Dave. Yeah. Um, Dave stopped, I guess, because Earl came in in 1988. I think uh, David stopped a couple years later, later, more because of his knee. Mm-hmm. 
it was than anything else. He had a bad knee, and he he became a road agent and uh, and for a while there, Earl kept refereeing as Dave Hebner, but I can't remember the exact year when they just finally decided that not he's Earl Hebner, and there wasn't really an explanation to it or anything. It was just no, he's Earl Hebner. Mm. That that makes me think about with Danny with Danny Davis. Did they ever like have any kind of storyline explanation for how he became a referee again? Um, well, he became a referee uh, because he was the the how he became a referee again. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, going from referee to wrestler back to referee. Right. No. Well, th- he there was no real explanation other than the fact that. He was reinstated as a referee and promised that he would call things down the middle and not be biased anymore. Other than that, uh, not really. Now, what uh, with the long the long sleeves was because he he had a tattoo, right? Yes. Okay. Well, it's because when and he wrestled with the tattoo. Yes, and as he, Mr. he wrestled X. with a mask on. He was Doctor X. Yeah. Or Mister X. I think it was Mister X. I think it was Mister X. Yeah, Mister X. So he wrestled as Mister X with the with the mask on, but the tattoos were very visible and uh, would have gave it away if he wore short sleeves hmm. as a referee. Right. Even, but uh, even later on, like I don't remember, like years later, once he had been, hadn't been Mr. X for 10 years, he still wore the long sleeve. Right, right. right. Um, so by the time you got there, was were the Athletic Commission weird political things still going on with the referees? Like yeah. where there where there would be certain referees who had to have a spot on the show, like in um, Pennsylvania and places like that. Yeah, pretty much. But you know the usual suspects: New York, Pennsylvania, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, I did. I didn't have a problem with them. That the, most of the guys were pretty good. I mean, like everywhere else, you run into a couple of guys who who, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to say had an attitude, but uh, I don't. They had a chip on their shoulder, let's say, because mm-hmm. they figured, you know, the WWF guys are coming in, taking their spot, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And and you can't blame the WWF or the WWE because, you know, it's their show. So they, in, in my opinion, they should be allowed to put whoever they want on their show. And, if, and you know, forcing them to put someone they don't want on the show... I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. Do you still do you still have any of your referee licenses? Um, somewhere. I mean, <laughs> there I've got stuff scattered around the house. I mean, I have several referee shirts still. I've got uh, more T-shirts than than you can shake a stick at. They're all kind of like in storage in my basement, but I'm, I'm sure there's a license or somewhere hanging around somewhere. Now, by the, by the time you left WWE, though, how many states were still regulating wrestling to the point that you needed a license? Um, just a handful, I think. Uh, trying to think off the top of my head. Did, was New, did New York still require it? Because I'm yeah, in New York. But, but it was a little more lax. You didn't uh, they didn't bring in their own um, official that had the referee on the show anymore. Right. It was more. Yeah, I guess more laid back. Mind you, they still came in. The doctors would come in and, and check on all the talent that was working, you know, blood pressure and that sort of stuff. But definitely not as strict as, nowhere near as strict as it was years ago. So now it's down to, like, I guess, maybe New York, Pennsylvania to some degree. Yeah. Um, think, Missouri, 
Kentucky, maybe Florida? Say, uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think wa- Washington State, I think still. California. Right. Yeah, Washington. Yeah. Washington, yeah. I knew. Yeah. Yeah, not too many. I think Nevada still does. Yeah. But I mean, are they doing it at all still? Is it like, is there still sort of a pretense of a, this is a legitimate sport, or is it just that they never changed it? No, it's just, I think it's just that they never changed it, and and really the athletic commissions really oversee boxing more than they do wrestling. Right. And, uh, and I hate to say it this way, but I don't blame them for sticking around because wrestling is what really what makes them money. <laughs> now, well, and then in other states, obviously UFC, yeah, has made some huge inroads. But, uh, um, yeah, so it, <laughs> I hate to put it that way, but it's it, it's a money thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, I've I've wondered because I know in New York, like if you go to indie shows, there's less, like because I know in New York they they would they were very strict about certain things, like you had to have mats on the floor. And that for a while there there was never as big an independent presence in within New York than there were like compared to other places that would have big populations like I guess Southern California, right? Because it was stuff like that that you had to have the mats on the floor and stuff like that and uh, and and you know promoters license and all that. I think there's you still need a promoters license because there's still not as much as you'd expect, right? Uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think it's the promoters license and you have to have. Uh... Some form of insurance, I believe. Right, and uh, I, I remember watching some old like Philadelphia Spectrum tapes, and you could just tell how like politicized the whole thing was because there would be three ring announcers throughout the show. Yeah, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. You'd have like the WWF ring announcer, whoever it was. You know, if they brought in, if it was Finkel or I think there was a local guy in Philadelphia too. But mm-hmm. and then they'd also have like I. Uh, do you remember Frank Talent from the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission? Uh, it sounds familiar. I don't. Older guy with glasses, wore very loud suits. Uh, yes, now that you mentioned the loud suits, yes. And it, yeah, because he showed up on early ROH shows and stuff, and he, I remember watching this old tape, and I'm like, that's Frank Talent. Right. So it, it's very weird just how pol- how political something seemingly so minor like that could be. Oh, yeah, yeah. The... the Depending on which which uh, state you go to, some some athletic commissions are very involved, while others are very hands off. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania at one time was very hands on. Uh, yeah, not, I think most of them are, even if they still have licensing and stuff, are pretty hands off. Like I said, New York doesn't do all the stuff they used to do and all that. Right. So uh, one thing I figure, just get it out of the way. Um, right now and then go back to more pleasant stuff. I know you don't want to go into it too in-depth for obvious reasons, but also that you talk about in the book that you were the referee in the ring when Owen Hart fell. And the main thing I really want to ask about is that there is an urban legend about it. Mm-hmm. That while he was falling, he had the wherewithal to tell you to get out of the way. Is that true? Um, to be honest with you, I've heard the same thing. Um, I can't say for sure that that's what he was that's what he, what actually happened because you know it was really weird because right before that whole scenario there was a hardcore match in the ring and there was a lot of debris and basically what we were doing at the time was trying to clear the ring out of of uh, 
you know, like broken tables and mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. So there was a lot of crowd noise going on. Um, and of course, on the screen was the backstage promo that Owen was doing with Kevin Kelly. It, it I didn't click. It nothing clicked back that that uh, somebody was screaming at me to get out of the way or anything like that. I was more concentrated on like like I said, clearing the debris out of the ring. So it may be true, and I don't want to say it isn't, but I didn't consciously hear it. Okay. So, and you were not in that corner then, obviously. Uh, and actually, or were I, you? I was moving right towards that corner. Um, to be honest with you, Owen, uh, uh, I felt him brush against me. Wow. When he, if I if I was over about a half a foot or a foot to my right or towards that corner, uh, I may not be talking to you right now. Wow. Yeah. And I did it how. I mean, how often do you just come back to thinking about that? Um, yeah, more often than you'd think. I mean, I know it's been, uh, what? Uh, almost 14 years almost now. 14 wow. Years now, but still, it, it's something that, that that sits with you always. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, I could still kind of picture turning around and first noticing him there. You know, and and being shocked and 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 that confusion that runs through your mind and not knowing what to do. I mean, it, it's it's something I'll never forget, obviously, but it, it does it pops into my mind a lot more than than you know uh, people might think it does. Because of that reason, I mean, besides uh, uh, it, because of, or just because of everything. Uh, I think the whole thing altogether. I mean, like for example, like I said, when when Owen brushed against me on a uh, falling, I didn't know that that's what had happened until the next day. I had felt something, but in my mind, I thought somebody threw something that that hit me that brushed against the side of mm-hmm. my head. And when I talked to the Jerry the King Lawler um, the next day, he's the one who said that he saw about the last I don't know fifteen twenty feet of his fall. And he's the one who told me that that's what it was that brushed against me. Wow. I guess also to dispel any urban legends about this, to the best of your knowledge, because of with the way the lighting was and stuff, and I guess whatever came up in the civil case, was there any kind of videotape? Did it get destroyed? Um, if there is, then I, I have no idea okay. that there is. Because um, I was never told that there was. Um, I don't think there is and and if there is then they've kept it a, a secret because i've never even heard of it there being a videotape or or that one i feel like it. if there was we would know that it would have come out in a lawsuit and it would have exactly. exactly it would have it would have come up in martha hart's book some something yeah. that, that there would be something more tangible by now that people would know about at least exactly exactly so and if so, in my my opinion, I be, I don't believe uh, the video exists. That if if the camera was trained on the ring, that the lights were out, the the all the light was focused on the screen in the corner where the entrance was. Right. So there, it, if it if it caught anything, it was not enough to be of any, you know, value in the lawsuit or anything like that. And either way, either way, I would guess that unless it was you know for evidence laws or whatever, they would have been destroyed. Oh, probably. And, you know, I would guess that that was probably one of the terms of the settlement. 
Yeah, I, I if there was a tape. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I I don't know anything about that. So. All right. Oh right. So yeah, like I said, I wanted to get that out of the way, just especially because. Like you say, you've heard that a lot, too, that that's become kind yeah. of a story. But to the best of your knowledge, the whole thing where it's become like, and not to get too whatever about it or to say it reflects any differently on Owen Hart in any way, but the no. whole thing where people are like, oh, that, you know, he, he, he even had the state of mind to save your life or whatever. It's right. nice to think of it that way, but it's not yeah. what not what happened. Well... Unless you, unless it just, unless unconsciously, some you didn't realize it, and whatever. right, exactly, yeah. Right. So now, back to more happy, happy thoughts. Uh, just, who were the wrestlers who were just the most fun to work with, and like why? Like, what would as a referee, who was the most fun? And well, picking picking the most fun is hard because. Uh, I enjoyed it so much. It, it, for me to pick the most fun would be hard, but I could pick guys who were uh, a, a bunch of guys. Like, for example, well, you mentioned Owen Hart. Owen was fun to work with because he had fun doing what he did. Um, and he worked a lot with Edge and Christian in the later days in tag matches with Jeff Jarrett. And uh, Edge and Christian were, were hilarious and, and fun to work with. Eddie Guerrero, as you can imagine, uh, especially during the live cheat and steal stuff, and he'd always keep us guessing. And 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 a lot of the stuff he did was on the fly, especially at at uh, live events and house shows. So, uh, you know, kept you on your toes, that's for sure. Uh, one guy that I always enjoyed working with that people might not think is uh, is Finley. Finley is a lot uh, is probably one of the toughest guys ever to enter the ring, but also one of the funniest guys. At, at live events when it's not on TV, so it just just little things. He'll just sputter something and say something that just makes you want to crack up laughing, and it just you know, or even just a look. And it's very subtle. It's very quick. But most of the guys are fun to work with. I mean, even Triple H, you know, would joke around at at some of the live events and stuff like that. And just it, they love what they do and they have fun doing it. And uh, and you can see it, you know. So, so to pick just one or two or three, it, it really very hard. There weren't as few as just, yeah. I wasn't going to excuse me. I wasn't going to as many house shows for a few years. I guess like during like that period where Triple H was more like the top heel and stuff. But I, I read a lot that he would on house shows he would kind of work a different style. That he would do a lot more shtick and stuff like that. Um, he. Again, it was it, house shows is where the guys get to have uh, to let loose and and be more interactive with the crowd, mm -hmm. and 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 just again, they love what they do. They're in that business because they love what they do, and 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 it shows. And they have a little bit more fun, and they and they, not that they're not entertaining when they're on TV and pay per view, but they, they, it's a different kind of entertainment. It's like you don't have again those time restrictions. Um, placed upon you, you have a little more freedom and creativity. So, uh, yeah, the house shows is, is where everybody kind of uh, lets loose, so to speak. Now, you mentioned Finley. Like, did he? I don't know about necessarily comedy spots or whatever, but did he almost like have a different way of like kind of knowing how to work with the referee from working that European style, where a big part of it was the enforcement of the rules and the way they 
have the yellow cards or the public warnings and stuff like that? Like, did he have a different way of working with you, if that makes sense? Um, no, I understand exactly what you're saying. Not only him, but you take someone like himself, uh, Finley, uh, William Regal. Um, they have an understanding in <clears throat> where they respect the referee's authority. And, <clears throat> excuse me again, um, what they would do is, and, and you watch it in their matches, and, and they, they take advantage of the referee, not by making him look stupid, but by circumventing rules so to speak like uh, you know like taking full advantage of the five count and they won't get in the referee's face and yell at him if you ever notice that they never like bow up to the referee and and really start you know yelling at him they'll always back up kind of like with their hands in the air always showing yes sir mr referee you're the i know you're the boss i don't want to be disqualified so when you see the heel do that then you you realize that hey Maybe the referee is the authority figure in the ring. This is the guy that they have to respect the rules. And when they do cheat, they do it behind the referee's back as opposed to doing it blatantly in front of them, which is what everybody does now. And it kind of defeats the purpose of being a heel. And it, and it doesn't help the referee as well. So it, it's it's a different mindset. It's, it's not necessarily just a European mindset. It's also almost an old school mindset. Right, but I think to some degree it does come from working that style. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Because there's one thing I think, I'm trying to remember if it was um, McManus or I think maybe his tag team partner, that they would do a thing where they'd have the guy, they'd have the opponent in the headlock and they would kind of do like, um, it would do a more minor infraction to distract the referee and to just get his head just looking the other way just for a second Mm -hmm. to get to that, to then get in something more serious. Like, yeah, in British wrestling, a closed fist would be a very big deal. So right. they like pull the hair to get the referee just to have his eyes dart away for a second, right? And then punch it or then, something like yeah, that. Very something very quick and very taking advantage of a situation as opposed to um, one of the things that drives me insane is uh, watching tag matches, for example, where um, mm. they're getting heat on the baby face. The heels are getting heat on the baby face. They draw in the baby face into the ring that's the guy on the apron, the illegal guy. Mm -hmm. The referee goes to get him out, and he's there for like 10, 15 seconds, and the two heels behind his back are doing, hitting him with everything but the kitchen sink. It needs to be quicker. It needs to be more more plausible. uh, Yeah, because A, it makes the referee look bad. B, it makes the other baby face who's trying to get into the ring look bad. And, and it doesn't help anybody, and it's not putting heat on the heels, it's putting heat on the other two guys that are not supposed to get the heat put on them. So, you know, there's ways to do it where it can be very quick, it could be very subtle, it doesn't have to be behind the referee's back uh, choking the guy 15 seconds or, or punching him 10 times. Sometimes you get more heat from one well-placed kick as opposed to five punches. Right, the 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 less ridiculous it is, ridiculous it is, the like the quicker, just the quicker window they get it in. I think it's more right. effective that way. Yeah, less is more theory. <laughs> now, with the whole you know hot tag behind the referee's back thing, yeah. what would be kind of your internal logic for that? Was it the idea that if the and especially if the heels would then kind of fake a tag by clapping their hands behind the referee's back? 
Mm-hmm. Like, the idea I've seen fans come up with was always kind of that, well, the heels are dominating the match. It doesn't matter as much if they're making a legal tag. Is that the logic you would kind of use in your head, or...? Uh, I never really... Uh, it's it's one thing that the WWE right now has gotten away from. They They don't... Their logic now is in a tag match. If you don't see the tag, then don't allow the tag. It doesn't matter if right. They never do the clapping behind the referee's back right. anymore. See, see that that to me never made sense because, it, it, again, I think it puts heat on the referee if he doesn't see the tag by the baby faces, doesn't allow it, yet the heels make a noise of the clapping sound behind <laughs> his back. You know that's supposed to be okay. You know, again, you didn't see the tag. You should make them tag back. And you could do that, and the heels can still be heels by bitching and complaining about it to the referee before making a legal tag, you know, sarcastically in front of the referee's face, so to speak, if you know what I mean. Just Right, instead of doing the, you know. Right, because right, yeah, that was always one of those things that, yeah, I guess that explanation that I mentioned sort of makes sense. But it's still no. Most most fans are not going to be thinking of it to that degree. It's right, going to exactly. be wait. The referee didn't see one tag. Why didn't? Why is he allowing that one? He, exactly. He didn't see either of them. Right. right. So yeah. So now oh, yeah. I think I think I've noticed that a little bit. But when I think about it, it yeah, I, that they really that it was probably never as much of a WWF thing anyway to do that extra tag behind. They wouldn't necessarily do the hand slapping thing, but the heels they would do the heel switching. Right. They wouldn't necessarily do that specific spot, but they would have the heel switch. Yeah, but you're it right; was... it makes more. It makes a, it it makes a lot more sense. So it's good to see them get away from that because it's it's not putting it's not putting that much more heat on the heels. No, exactly, and and that's where you want your heat to go. You want your heat to go on the heels and not not the not the referee because uh, let's face it, it uh, as as important to the match as a referee can be, he's not the one who is actually. As as they say, put butts in the seats. Nobody's buying a ticket to see a referee. They're buying a ticket to see the talent. So right. you don't want the heat to go on the guy who's not selling any tickets. Okay. So, I guess so. I, I kind of I think I'm I know what type of answer to expect. Like I was as far as what's a good referee. They usually hear the same thing. Like you don't you can't really be distracting, but. You can't really be too noticeable. It needs to be just right. You don't stand out in a bad way. You shouldn't necessarily stand out that much in a good way because you don't want to distract from the wrestlers because they're the ones that are getting need to get over. But yeah. I guess because not to necessarily slight someone like that, but what do you think of someone, I guess, who had a more showy style, like a Tommy Young or a Brian Elderbrand? Um, well, for 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 their time... I thought it worked great. I'm a big fan of Tommy Young's and Brian as well, too. <clears throat> Both excellent referees, and and that was their style, and that's what fit in that time period where, you know, I guess you could say some some of the referees had an had an actual personality, and I'm not and I'm not saying that referees today shouldn't have a personality, but it shouldn't be as uh, overt, so to speak. It shouldn't be as noticeable. I mean, everybody, all the referees should have their own kind of style. I think in today's wrestling, I think the referee, like you said, should be um, try to stay invisible, not not like a ghost. In other words, obviously not knowing he's there. Just not be a like you said a distraction. 
you can notice the fact, oh, yes, there is a referee in the in the match, but he shouldn't be the focal point in the match unless there's a specific um, spot in the match which calls for him to be, you know, noticeable. But uh, you, you, you can take any match where you see a referee can make a good match better, but a, but a not-so-good referee can also take away from a good match. He, he won't make it bad because, uh, obviously, the talent is eventually what's going to shine in the match. But in subtle ways that, that people don't really notice, a good referee can make a very good match even better. Yeah, to me, that almost seems like kind of a WCW and WWF difference because if you just picture in your head, like, it's not something that hap- would happen that much in WWF. Besides from stuff like, I guess, more recently, the Undertaker-WrestleMania matches mm-hmm. that the referee would react to the big uh, near falls more. Whereas it's kind of worked with the WCW style a little better that you'd have, you know, Brian Hildebrand brand reacting, you know, to every little thing, like recoiling, you know, at the spots or, you know, being, you know, very animated with the two counts or... Uh, why am I forgetting his name all of a sudden? I just said Tommy Young. Tommy uh, Young. You know, whether his thing was more... I guess that he'd just be... I Just, you know, being very animated or... Well, I think with him, though, a lot of the stuff was that he'd do things that would make sense as a referee right. that were different. Like, I think it's... I'm trying to remember. Was it maybe Ric Flair and Nikita Koloff? Where he did the thing where the wrestlers were... They weren't in the ropes, but they were near the ropes. And whoever was getting pinned, his shoulders were facing towards the outside of the ring. So he did the thing where he slid out of the ring to count. Right. Right. That 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 adds to the match because well, it comes and it makes it it doesn't distract from the match, but it makes the referee look smart. And right. a lot of things in wrestling over the years make the referee look stupid. So Yeah. That and adds to it. And that's the that's the thing. They're trying to get away from making the referee look like uh like the the uh, the stereotypical, you know, goofy referee that doesn't that's you know, hey, ref, you're blind kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and like you said, stuff like Tommy Young sliding out of the ring so he could see both shoulders, which is, you know, from a logic standpoint, if you if you have to see both shoulders in order to make the pinfall uh, a count, that's what you would have to do. You know, so... And, and you talk about facial expressions and reacting to what goes on in the ring. Um, I think it's very important for the referee to react to... to what goes on in the ring, um, and but for me, it's not. It doesn't have to be. <clears throat> excuse me again. Over the top reactions throughout the whole match. I mean, right. You know, incremental throughout the match. You, you know, whether it's a subtle facial expression like "Ooh, that looked like it hurt" or something like that. I, getting over the top, though, uh, I think in today's wrestling would look too uh, hokey, so to speak. Right, but there are degrees of it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, and- you know, yeah. again, it all of the the referee with with subtle little motions and subtle little facial expressions, again, can enhance a match. Right. I mean, if I if I think back, I tend to you think as being like a on the more animated side for a WWF referee in terms of facial expressions, compared to I guess like a Hebner or Jack Doan. Like right. Kyoto was probably a little more. I would be would be on the more animated side. Right. But yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, so kind of, yeah, so exactly, get what you're saying. Um, I guess the last thing I really just want to ask, because this is the type of thing that's, that that fascinates me for whatever reason, 
I mean, well, yeah, I mean, you spent your whole career in WWF, but still, from seeing wrestlers who would come in from WCW and stuff, besides stuff like the ring, and what are, like, the little things that were different in WWF as far as the style? This um, is something I'm tending to ask everyone who's been in the WWF, for, because right. it's just one of the, like I said, it's one of those little things that I find myself interested in, and, and you hear fans talking about, too, because when they hear about, oh, the WWE style, and... If they hear, oh, this wrestler is being told he can't work WWE style and they get upset. What is it that you've observed that's necessarily different besides the ring and all that? Um, you know what? Not a whole lot. I mean, especially during the days of the, the Monday Night Wars, there mm -hmm. was that rivalry amongst companies. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it wasn't so much a rivalry between the boys themselves. Because, you know, you know honesty the boys are they're they're a brotherhood they're a fr like a fraternity you know that they, they there was nothing ever really personal against the talent themselves it was just company versus company mm. so there was that kind of you know friendly rivalry going on amongst the talent but it wasn't anything personal um i, I remember one instance in, in particular where uh we were in pittsburgh and it just so happened that um, the WWE and Monday Nitro were were filming not too far apart. We're doing their TV shows, Monday Night Raw and Nitro. But everybody kind of converged in Pittsburgh, and we ended up staying. A lot of the guys ended up staying at the same hotel. And, you know, they met in the bar, and it wasn't like there was, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen now? There was no tension there. It was like, hey, how's it going? Kind of thing. And it was, And people were kind of shocked, like, wait a minute, why are the – WCW guys and the WWF guys mingling. It's because they're all wrestlers. They're all talents. Right, now, a lot of them are already friends. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you can see people kind of going, oh, oh what's going to happen now? Nothing. Have a few pops and relax. But but when these guys would come over, especially when WCW was, was purchased, um, I think the WCW guys may have felt, and, and again, I'm just, this is just my personal observation mm -hmm. may have felt that they thought that they weren't being as, as accepted as the as the already established WWE locker room mm -hmm. so maybe they had something to prove to the guys that they could that they belonged mm -hmm. I don't know it may have been there but you know like I I personally didn't see any personal animosity towards any of the guys coming over so and as I mean, far... obviously there were some clash of egos. I mean, it's a it's a business where it's very much ego driven, so you will see that. But at the same time, uh, I didn't see a lot of headbutting, so to speak. And as far as like the in ring style, how like is the stuff we hear about sometimes like that the heel has to bump on every punch or whatever it is like? How is there as much of an emphasis put on that? is you sometimes hear about where like someone new doesn't know how to do that like jericho talked about that in his book where he was kind of seen as guzzling guys or no selling because he wasn't bumping as much as wwf heels usually did so well, yeah was that like was is that kind of probably the biggest difference that the whole thing with the heels and the bumping i think i think that um you know like in chris's case uh yeah that was different i mean chris Chris is, is a very, very good talent. And, and, you know, his mindset is, 
you know, set in a in a different style. Obviously, WCW um, work work a slightly different style, like you said. So there is that adjustment period, but at the same time, he's professional enough to to pick up on it really quick. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So maybe that was his personal experience, but I don't know if a whole lot of guys went through the same thing or not. It seems like as I'm lately when I've been doing interviews, it seems like I'm starting to hear more that like the stuff you hear about like that is not or certain ways people are expected to lock up like i remember from tough enough that that's not really quite as big a deal as as people make it out to be like if they're coming out of the company or whatever well you know sometimes what happens is uh let's say it's one particular talent you're talking about like you said for example locking up um maybe he locks up a little loose and Mm -hmm. you know they're trying to tell him you know a little tighter get in there a little more you know aggressively to lock up or something like that. And they take it as a, as a slight, as opposed to uh, mm-hmm. you know, a constructive uh, um, helping point, so to speak. So, you know, everybody takes, takes uh, uh, advice differently and maybe that could be, could, could have contributed to it. I don't know. All right. So nowadays hosting aftermath and stuff, how, how well do you think you've made the adjustment for, to being a, I guess you're a talk show host now is the best way to put it. Um, I'm, I think I'm adjusting pretty good. I mean, obviously, a uh, long way to go, a lot to learn, <laughs> always learning. See, I, I equate it, uh, you know, trying to be a, an analyst and a broadcaster, the same as being in the wrestling business. You never stop learning. You're constantly um, picking up different points uh, learning from everybody you watch, picking up different little things that you can do, and 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 just be yourself is is the main thing. I think when when it comes to being an analyst and a broadcaster, I think if you try to play the part of an analyst or a broadcaster, people could see that. You know, they'll say, "Oh, he's just you know being a broadcaster." Whereas, you know, I figure if I'm just gonna if I'm gonna break down, let's say, Monday Night Raw, for example, or, or a segment of Monday Night Raw. I'm going to break it down the way I see it and the way I would explain it in my words as opposed to trying to make it sound like Mr. Analyst. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like I said, I'm constantly learning, constantly trying to improve. I am, I'm my own worst critic, whether it comes to refereeing or, or, or being on television analyzing something or being in an interview with you. I'm my own <laughs> critic all the time, so I'm uh, I'm never happy uh, with uh, anything I do. I always want to do better. All right. So again, the book is the three count. My life in stripes as a WWE referee. Edge did the forward, and that comes yes. out on officially on April first. So I'm not going to give an exact amount of time because I don't know exactly when this interview is going to go up. But they, lately, the ECW book, ECW press books tend to go up on Amazon for order. I mean, that they get in stock about two weeks before the actual release date. So I would I would guess that maybe around the middle of March, you should be able to people should actually be able to order it. And uh, yeah, I'll leave that up to them. That, <laughs> that, that's uh, an area I won't even venture to guess yes and by and by the way uh for people who don't know if nowadays if you get a hard copy copy or a physical copy of an ecw press book if you email them your receipt they will send a uh an electronic copy to you 
Yep. For exactly. um, that that'll work with any any device that reads protected EPUB files. So basically, any ebook reader other than a Kindle or any tablet that so you know basically any tablet tablet ebook software other than Kindle right can read that. So if yeah, you if really you cool. yeah so if you like to have you know if if you like to get that version or you know sometimes you're not necessarily going to see it on all the ebook sites first but they'll send you that copy so that's nice and yeah it's worth keeping in mind if you prefer to read stuff on your ebook on your e-reader or your tablet that you can just order the physical copy yeah thank you thank you for reminding uh, about that i keep that's that's one of the things i i keep forgetting to mention yeah and they they, they put out a lot of good books lately yeah and yeah, they have a lot of good ones coming up. And yours, the is the Bob the Bob Holly book is theirs, right? Yeah, Bob Holly's book is coming out uh, roughly the same time, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, up mon- here in Canada, there's some good books. Uh, I know Greg Oliver has written uh, Heroes and Icons. Yeah, that came out recently. The Montreal they, history book that Pat Laprade and Bertrand. Oh, I forgot yep. his last name. Uh, mm-hmm. The other, the other one did. Yes, yes. That, yes. that 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 might actually not be officially out yet, or just officially came oh, out. But that's been out for a few weeks. I think it came out in February. Yeah, because okay. I, Pat actually sent me a copy. It's it's a. I've been reading some of it. It's a very detailed and very, uh, you know, if you're really into history of professional wrestling, especially, you know, Quebec has a rich, rich history way back, uh, dating way back. So very good, very good read. Yeah. Shooters came out several months back. That book's great. Yes. So they they did. This is I think it been like the best run they've had, just in terms of quality book after quality book. Because they yeah. put out a lot of good stuff, and I, I'm I I'm very grateful that they're around and that they're so supportive of wrestling books. Yeah. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So that's the book, and also if you're in Canada. You can watch Jimmy with Arda O'Call on Aftermath every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern right after the Raw replay. Yeah, so, and I, yeah. I'm not sure if it if you can get it in the States, but uh, um, I believe it, it goes up on the SCORE website, which is the scoretv.ca. You, you, I, I, I'm not sure if you can access it in the States because I know sometimes here in Canada, when we try to access video, it says it's not available. Yeah, um, right now I'm looking at the site. Like at least if I look at the page for Aftermath, there's no videos there. But I know I've seen. I mean, they might they might not post in there. They might just post it on the blog that Arda does for them. Because right. I know that I know I've seen stuff from the show or maybe the uncut interviews. But if if you if you look around, you, you'll find it. You'll find yeah. you can find yeah. stuff from the show online, even if you're not in Canada. Right, exactly. Right. So, thank you so much for doing this, man. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a thank blast. You. Thanks. Yeah, it has been fun. I, I appreciate it, David. All right. Take care, man. You too.